Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1945 film Christmas in Connecticut. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great. Merry Christmas. This is our Christmas Day episode. Uh, a fitting film to watch on Christmas Day. Uh, Barrett, what is your history with this film? Uh, well, this is a so I, I'm on a I'm on a quest to become uh, a, not a completist with Christmas movies. That's probably not possible. But I want to catch up on a lot of Christmas movies I haven't seen. So Christmas is a Connecticut is one that I have known by reputation, but I have not seen. You know, so it was kind of a spate of these Christmas films in the in the mid '40s, and of course, last year we did It's a Wonderful Life, uh, and there's other ones like Holiday Inn and White Christmas. Um, so this one I just know, but knew by reputation, and um, I knew that it was Barbara Stanwyck, which is always interesting to me. So that's about all I knew about it. I mean, I, I knew the basic plot, uh, but that was about it. So you did you you knew the premise of the movie? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I gotta say I went in without knowing anything, so right. I, I was. <laughs> So pleasantly surprised as this plot kind of unrolled in the first uh, maybe 20 minutes of the film. So I need to ask you a question. um, And this is relevant to this movie, uh, but it's just it, it, it it's just something I'm curious about. You yourself are a native of Connecticut, right? That's true. Okay, so does being a native of Connecticut add to your affections or feelings for this film? I suppose it adds a little bit to my affection for the film because because it's not only that I'm a native of Connecticut, but it's probably important to note that I'm a native of Southern Connecticut. And it's Southern Connecticut. I'm a little bit outside of this of this um, uh, perimeter, but it's Southern Connecticut, especially within 50 miles of New York, where traditionally the New Yorkers have always kind of had their country house or their other residence. Um, and so this is very, to me, this is very reminiscent of that idea of the New of the Connecticut that the New Yorkers kind of escaped to. And of course, these days, it's the New York that Connecticutites actually go into the city to work at. So it just, it, it reminds me of that. And of course, I should also connect it with um, another film we saw quite a while ago, Bringing Up Baby, that has the same Southern Connecticut setting. And um, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to catch up on something I should have said years ago. We watched Bringing Up Baby when they're trying to get the um, trying to find their way to Bridgeport, Connecticut. That's the city where I was born. Uh, so that has a lot of re- uh, resonances for me as well. OK, uh, I'm not going to belabor this, but I need to know um, because I am a native Minnesotan. I've lived here with the exception of one year my entire life. How do citizens of Connecticut feel about references to their state? And I'm going to I'm going to preface this or. I just not prefacing, but I'm gonna before you answer, I'm gonna say the reason I'm asking this is because if this movie were called Christmas in Minnesota, there would be people who would think this movie is a classic on principle because it mentioned Minnesota. Because that's Minnesotans have that much of like an inferiority complex that it's like anything where somebody will say our name, we get excited about. <laughs> Conne- tell me about Connecticut. Well, first of all, I, I can't think of a lot of references to Connecticut in the movies. And it seems to me that um, this Connecticut is important in this movie only as an adjunct to New York. Right. So, so, so I think a lot of people, a lot of us in Connecticut feel like we're sort of second cousins to New York. Because um, yeah, it, that, that, that only seems to be the part, the part of Connecticut that gets referred to. So, and, 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 I, and I will add, you haven't asked about this, Sam, but I will add that... Um, there is a uh, there, there's a line uh, that you can draw across Connecticut in terms of um, sports loyalties. So it, it, you draw the line at Hartford. So Northern Connecticut is considered really more New Englandy 
than Southern Connecticut is. Even though I call myself a Connecticut Yankee, the fact is I feel as much like a New Yorker in some ways because of my sports loyalties as anything else. So do do people in especially Southern Connecticut, do they embrace the New York of it or do they resent the New Yorkers coming, you know, as like this is their... I I think think, there's definitely not resentment. I think think there's a certain amount of embracing. And as I said, now, you know, as many people in Connecticut go into New York and and work as people in New York come into Connecticut. So, no, I I think there's just a sense that we're sort of one long um, excerpt connected by Route 95 to New York City. All right. All right. Uh, so this movie is so clearly a Christmas movie. I mean, it's in the title Christmas in Connecticut, but it was released on August 11th, 1945. <laughs> um, so I was curious, is this is this a, a common like uh, for the 40s, 50s? Is this a common movie thing that there would be a Christmas movie that would be released so f- really on the opposite end of the year of the Christmas holiday is this does this have to do with how movies were rolled out across the country that's that yeah that that's a good question and, and I haven't got a good answer to that I did see you know one article saying that it was inexplicably released uh at this at this point I I I well you know first of all I don't know what else Warner Brothers was releasing at that time I do know that it was one of Warner Brothers biggest hits of the year it did very well, over three million at the box office. Um, I have a theory, but I have no idea if it has connection to reality. That the movie was uh, premiered in New York at the end of July, and then, as you said, it went wide in August. So this, I wonder to what degree they were wanted to pick up on the beginning of a kind of post-war euphoria, um, you know, because VE Day had already passed, VJ Day was coming up. Um, and I wonder if the studio thought, you know, let's not wait till Christmas because let's give let's let's embrace the opportunity to feel good right now. That that's my theory. I have no idea if it's reality or not. That's interesting because this, like I said, this movie releases wide on August 11th. The uh, uh, surrender of Japan is three days after this, so like it is really right uh right there so I, I did look up some of the sort of late 40s early 50s christmas classics and i just want to read this because it's actually quite funny so it's a wonderful life uh premieres on december 20th 1946 makes perfect sense yeah miracle on 34th street may 2nd 1947 oh. shop around the corner uh january 25th 1940 white christmas october 14th 1954 so they're kind of all over the place um mm-hmm. the miracle on 34th street one is the strangest to me um yeah. may seems real far away from christmas so so it's, so it's not it's not uncommon to see this kind of thing and i also suspect that some of it may simply have to do with the vicissitudes of production you know it may be that they had something else they were going to release say, in may and it wasn't ready and they had this in the can so they just went ahead with it it could also be that they thought the movie wasn't going to do particularly well or they may have thought the movie was going to do well enough to come back for a re-release at christmas time uh and i'm glad you brought up the idea the it, this movie's relationship to world war ii and especially to post-war because i think um this is a charming Christmas movie, but it's a really interesting movie if you think about it in relationship to the war and the questions it asks about America, both kind of during the late war period, but then the early post-war period. Uh, this is a kind of fascinating movie to think about, actually, and, I, and that's what I kind of want to dig into. Um, so much like uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and especially a movie like White Christmas, which comes out about... Uh, 
nine years later, <clears throat> it, it is really thinking about the idea of how World War II has pulled so many people, not just the, the people going off to Europe or the Pacific to fight, but pulling everybody away from uh, what they might consider sort of traditional situations they would be in, even traditional roles they would be in. So we see that uh, that Jeffrey Jones is serving in the Navy, as is Sinkowitz, as is Mary Lee. So uh, we're, we're introduced to that. Um, Yardley's daughter, the reason he's not having Christmas with his family is that she's doing war work in Washington. Mm-hmm. We have the mothers of the two babies in Connecticut who are dropping them off because they're going to work in factories. Um, so so this movie, it definitely wants to think about those questions. And you're right. And, and, and this is... And this is Yardley, of course, who it's it seems like in some ways Yardley represents a kind of old guard um, who wants to be sure that the traditional gender roles are kind of reinforced. And so he's, uh, you know, it's really important to him that uh, Elizabeth Lane represent this kind of very traditional view of domesticity, um, the, the, the whole sense of... Um, of home, of home and homeliness. You know the idea that they want the Jefferson to be able to experience a real, uh, a real kind of traditional family holiday. I mean, it's really interesting how the film both plays with that kind of domestic ideal, but at the same time, kind of questions it in every in, in, at every turn. So, I mean, it's fundamentally questioned by the fact that, in fact, this ideal uh, idol that. Elizabeth Lane represents simply doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I mean, that's the first way the film kind of blatantly, if you will, sort of deconstructs this notion of this ideal domesticity. It simply doesn't exist. And then, of course, you have the various characters who play domestic roles that are traditionally assigned to women. So it's, uh, you know, so in terms of how do you how do you bathe and swaddle and swaddle a baby? Well, Jefferson Jones knows all about this. Um, how do you uh, how do you cook? Uh, Felix knows all about uh, know all about that. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, who makes the munitions? It's the women working in the factory. So it's a really, I mean, it's uh, well, that's one thing that really struck me about the film um, because the Sam, the first time I watched it, I thought, oh, why did I pick this? It's so it's so fluffy and light. There's nothing to really talk about. And then and then you go back and you're like, but actually that's what makes it so effective because it's questioning all these things beneath this surface of uh, of kind of you know just a good rom com. Well, that's what that's what's interesting is if you think about the women in the film, there is not one woman in the film who stands up as like, well, this is the this is that that um, that ideal lived out that every single i mean whether it's nora who's unmarried whether it's the women working in the factories whether it's elizabeth lane whether it's you know everybody you meet is um is somebody who is not the elizabeth lane of the magazine right that that elizabeth lane everyone is reading about and 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 that that's a powerful idea in this movie right mm-hmm. the idea of that but it's not reflected anywhere in in the movie itself right right um, so this movie, as I said, it, it begins uh, by rolling out surprises. And if I didn't, I didn't know anything about this. So when it opens on a battleship, I was just like, I, I guess I, I don't know what this is going to be. Uh, but it, um, so and then and then you instantly see that battleship sunk by a German submarine, and you see these two sailors 
stranded at sea for 18 days and i will say the movie handles that very lightly and very quickly mm-hmm. because it's like a, it's a it could be a very harrowing beginning but instead it's like okay we're gonna we need to establish this so we can move on with the story but like that's that's quite a uh quite an opening for for where this movie ends up going yeah i i was pretty confident i had the right movie but you're right when you open that way um but of course, what I love about that opening scene is I do love the the fantasy. Uh, the, the well, he calls it a dream. I thought it was more of a hallucination. But the fantasy on the lifeboat, which of course revolves around food, so it kind of tells you right away that's going to be an important theme. Yes, and then from there we move into this is a story about uh, layers of scamming. <laughs> you know, yeah. whether it's whether it's you know Sinkowitz explaining the uh, the magoo, which is going to get them, you know better food to um to mary who's also scamming to be like okay how this person is whether she thinks he's he's working an angle with her or not she's she and the other nurse are talking about sort of how do you close the deal on getting married um and uh you know and so this leads her to to contact yardley and then we see the bigger reveal of the even bigger scam of the the person we've seen set up as Elizabeth Lane when we actually see her life. I love the scene where you see her writing and you and you hear hear what she's writing and it's juxtaposed with what she's looking at. She talks about looking out the window and you see her laundry <laughs> hanging there. And I, I I just think that's uh that's such a and all this happens within the first t- 10, 15 minutes of the movie. You're put into all of these layers of people working, uh, working different angles on um, kind of how do you make it in this world? <laughs> yeah, and it's it, yeah, as you said, Sam, it, it's very economical. It, it kind of sets it up very nicely. It sets up the various the various roles. I mean, I love the fact that we find out at the end that evidently, evidently, Sinkowitz's Magoo has worked too well on, on on Mary, and of course, he's kind of which which is of course important because it opens up the possibility for Jefferson and and Elizabeth to get together as well. Uh, the the other thing I like about the opening is. Um, it establishes her relationship with Felix. Um, Felix is, I think, the most important character in the film, and we can talk. We can talk more about him. We should mention that he, he uh, Felix is S. Z. Cuddles Sakal or Sakal, a uh, Hungarian actor whom we met before, uh, of course, as Carl in Casablanca, the waiter Carl. Um, and then we also have to say right after that, we have Sidney Greenstreet, who we also saw as a Senor Ferrari in Casablanca. So it's very interesting because he had those two actors in the, in the, in a, a very different World War II film in Casablanca coming in, coming into this, coming into this film. And you, I would say that, uh, Sacco was very much to type, whereas Greenstreet, um, there's elements of the classic kind of Greenstreet, uh, darker persona, but then of course, they lighten him up by uh, by the end. But the other thing I want to say about the opening scene with with um, with Felix and uh, and Elizabeth is the arrival of the mink coat and the sense that you know what kind of person is she? Because she says two really important things in that scene. One is she says you know what I wouldn't do for a mink coat. So you know that the profit motive is going to be very strong for her and something she's going to have to overcome. She's going to, she's going to have to make a choice for something other than money because it's set up that way. And then she says to, to Felix that promises are very important, very important you keep her promises. So it sets up her character at the beginning as well. The other thing about the mink coat that I think is important is where you see Mary and the other nurses in the hospital 
angling for how am I going to marry a soldier? Um, Elizabeth's dream is the mink coat. It's like it's like I I, I kind of and and it's an and, it, and it's important that it's a mink coat that she earns, mm-hmm. right? That it's like this is the life I'm building. You don't see her angling to get married, right? You know, like like she she has suit uh, at least a suitor, but she's not interested in and and she's figured out carved out a life for herself right she has she can't cook but she has felix she you know she has these different people around her she's carved out a uh a family of sorts you know between dud and sloan and and felix right Uh, that she has she has a way of life and she is clearly successful now i don't know how much of that success trickles down to her but whenever you hear yardley talk about the importance of her column it seems like it's the centerpiece to his magazine empire. <laughs> well, you know, what's, what's, what's interesting, though, is that despite the mink coat, it's important to note that she rejects Sloan, um, has consistently rejected Sloan, right? Because she has an, she does believe in love. She has an idea of love. And, of course, that's one of the early things that we see Felix commenting on. We know that Felix disapproves of Sloan, and it's a catastrophe. As he says it, when he learns about when he learns about their engagement, the the other really key thing, one of the many other key things that Felix contributes is his nickname for her, Lishka. That that actually because that, that that's very important. That, that Jefferson learns later on that that's really the way to address her as Lishka. So there's a lot going on with her and Felix. Yeah, I think um, I think Felix is the. Uh, I think there are three roles that are really, really, really important to this movie. And I think Felix is one of them, and he's kind of the heart of the movie in lots mm-hmm. and lots of ways. Uh, both in terms of you know standing up for, as you're pointing to, like her 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 belief in love, right? And he cares so deeply for her, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and is the closest thing to a family member that we see. You know, so so like it's not a stretch when he becomes Uncle Felix. There's lots of things people need to remember to keep the ruse going on, but him being Uncle Felix is not a hard part of that. I also love the fact that that we learn that she has staked his restaurant, right? Yep. So like 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 he's able to exist because she she gave him money to start his restaurant, which he is clearly successful enough that he's paid all of that back and that their their relationship is also about this sort of successful economic venture that they have together. Which is, of course, especially for 1945, yet another inversion of traditional gender roles, right? Mm-hmm. Because to have money is to have power uh, and to have influence. And that's not something typically women are thought to have in the 1940s. So another character that I think is unbelievably important to this movie, uh, and and it, I think it's a really hard role to play, is uh, Sidney Greenstreet as Alexander Yardley, mm-hmm. um, because he is such a wonderful, pompous force of nature in this movie. <laughs> I love every time he comes in, he just overpowers people, and he overpowers people um, by virtue of his like ability to talk. <laughs> like he just like like he just will. I love to see when she when she we first uh, when she first comes to to meet him in his office and she has a plan and you just watch and you know the plan you know what she's going to say and you just watch him not let her get a word in and so so he becomes the thing that then like kind of continues to push the tension in the movie because people can never explain things to him because he has his ideas right right and of course what, what which also brings up one of the other ways in which this film is structured, which I, I love, is certain scenarios are repeated several times. 
And so he overpowers her and he overpowers Sloane. And there may be one other place where he overpowers somebody. So when you set it up at the end where she finally gets to talk down to him, it's really been, it's really been set up as this wonderful series of repetitions and then, and then reversals. And I also have to say, maybe you were going to bring this up, Sam, but I have to say that the previous Barbara Stanwyck performance that people would have seen was the year before in Double Indemnity. And so when you see a Stanwyck character, you, you know you've got a powerful woman. So for her to go, so when she goes off to see him, I figure, okay, we're probably not going to have a movie if she wins this argument, but it's going to be a pretty good argument because it is Barbara Stanwyck. So there's a, there's a sense in which she, she, she really knows how to play a pretty powerful woman who nonetheless is frustrated by an even more overwhelming man. I want to get back to Stanwyck, but I want to stay with with with, okay, uh, okay. with, with Green Street a little bit. Um, uh, I also love, in terms of the the overpowering of people that we get at the end of the movie before we get uh, Elizabeth talking to uh, to Yardley, we get Felix and Yardley, right? Um, and Felix is the one who finally tells him to shut up and listen to other. People. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know. So so it's like so so there are these two. Um, uh father figures is probably too strong of a word but these two kind of older male figures in her life who play important roles in her uh her ability to make her life right yardley is her employer and felix is this person who cares for her right and, and you see you finally see him um kind of take action in that moment it's like 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 everybody's sort of holding back because of the 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 fear they have of what of Yardley finding out or things like this. And, um, and I, so I think that's such an important moment. And when he bluffs about the, uh, the other job offer, I just, I just love his, like, um, Felix is kind of scheming with that. I mean, it almost feels like a, uh, oddly like a mother, like, 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 like a maternal paternal forces in her life, you know? Um, and, and, and he, and Felix is playing a traditional, the kind of role you would see a mother playing, you know, like scheming to get this, scheming to get this, you know, to get her, um, uh, to get Elizabeth married to the right person and things like that. Like, like I love that dynamic between the two of them and the fact well, that they're and, both and, and coming from Casablanca is great. Right. And, 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 and I also, I just love the, the way in which there really is Felix is kind of the plot within the plot, right? So, so, so you have the, the whole plot that's unfolding, the whole domestic charade, charade. But I mean, he does. I mean, he he actually enables the whole thing to keep going. So you know, one of the repetitive actions, of course, is how often the judge comes back, and and how how are we going to keep delaying this 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 ceremony, right? So you have Felix. He 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 rips up the judge's card. He tells the story about the kid um, uh, swallowing the watch. As you've already alluded to, he comes up with this whole idea that she's had this other she's had this other job offer, and then and then there's even this really sweet little moment when she finally has to flip the the the, the plan cake, and she puts it up in the air and and it cuts to Felix praying right, and then the plan cake comes back down perfectly. So it's just I, he he just keeps he without him, you know, the whole thing would kind of ground ground to a halt, and and so I just love love that interaction. All right, let's talk Barbara Stanwyck. Um, because if, if Green Street is the, or Yardley Green Street is the, the, the tension or like, uh, at the center of the movie and, and Felix is the heart of the movie, 
Stanwick is the star of this movie, yeah. and what a star. I, I, I don't have any experience with her except for Double Indemnity. Mm. So this was really strange to watch and think, like, like I honestly need to go back and watch Double, which, uh, Double Indemnity, a movie I've seen many times, and just square the fact that it's the same person mm. because it's mm-hmm. such a different character, um, which lead, led me to kind of wonder, like, which of these roles is more indicative of her, the types of characters she played, her acting persona, or is she just really doing all kinds of different things? Cause like, I, I have a hard time thinking this person could go from one thing to another like that. Yeah. I'm not sure I've seen enough Stanwyck performances to say, although for me, I, I tend to think of her much more in the, in the noir double indemnity uh, category. I can think of more of her films that are sort of, you know, a little bit more hard boiled and hard edged, but at the same time, she certainly plays vulnerable and, uh, and 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 a little ditzy as well as anybody does. She is perfect in this role, um, and so and so I just wonder, like like like, does she have a lot more roles like this? Now, one of the things that I have brought up over the course of our conversations as something that sometimes bothers me in a movie um, is when a movie is telling me these two people are in love, and it's oh, like yeah. I don't see it; they don't show it. That is not the case with this movie. My favorite moment in this movie, and maybe maybe one of my favorite movie moments in movies in general, is when she is when they're in Connecticut at the very beginning, they're at the farm before Jones comes. And she seems like the character we've met so far in this movie. She's on board with the plan. She's even talked herself into this marriage. When Jones comes to the door and she opens the door and looks at him you watch her body chemistry change mm. like like i have never seen a this person just fell in love at first sight. like like i can't explain what she does but she becomes in front of your eyes she changes and the trajectory of the rest of the movie follows that change and she pulls it off so well if you had told me that she and Dennis Morgan had like a torrid love affair after this. I'd be like, yep. Cause I saw it. I saw it. It's, it, it feels as if it's the first time she saw him as a, like that, that Barbara Stanwyck saw Dennis Morgan and was like, I've just fallen in love. Like it's amazing. <laughs> well, as long as you're picking up favorite moments with her and Dennis Morgan, um, I, I just love the scene after they have put the cow back in the barn and they're sitting together. And, and he says, you don't act as if you are married. And she says, I don't feel as if I am married. Just the way she does that. Yes. Um, but, 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 you know, so let me get back to the earlier comment about Stanwyck. You know, as I said, I tend to think of her as, as the character she plays in Double Indemnity. I would also um, add a, a great press of surges film, The Lady Eve, uh, where she's a, I mean, she is a schemer and a scoundrel, or she's in a wonderful film with um, Gary Cooper a couple of years before that called Ball of Fire, Great Ball of Fire. So yeah, I so I think she's playing. I'm not sure there's a Stanwick type, but to the sense that there, to the degree there is a Stanwick type, I think she's playing a little bit against type and shows their, her ability to do that. It's almost like can Barbara Stanwick channel Meg Ryan? Yeah, here here she can. Now, what's great about this is after she has this this encounter with Jones and falls in love, even to, uh, to your point, the line of like, I don't feel like I'm married. What's great about this is from this point on, Elizabeth seems to barely care about keeping up the ruse. Like, mm. like it's like, I'm going to do say, say and yeah. do just enough, but I'm also not going to blow this opportunity uh, for for real love. And, and that plays so well. 
mean, to the point where one of my favorite runners throughout the the middle part of the movie is that Jones and Yardley keep explaining to Elizabeth facts about Elizabeth Lane's life. It's as if she has never read her writing and it's, and it's believable because she's like, Oh yeah, I'm not thinking about that stuff right now. So like when the cow's there and she says the cow and she's yeah, Makushi, like they, they start to explain the cow to her. And it's like, you're the one who created this myth that they're, that they're parroting back. Um, And I, I just, I really love that. And what it, allows for this film to do is i mean this is this is a movie which has a degree of like people running around trying to keep up appearances and things like that stories like that movies like that can sometimes get a little sweaty as you're like they're trying to you know do all the and 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 the fact that she's barely interested in that anymore mm-hmm. is so charming because they're they're still keeping it up but it's not like this is about keeping a bunch of plates spinning you know, like I actually think that that makes this movie so much of a an easier watch. I don't feel the 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 constant tension of them creating scenarios where somebody almost finds out. It just feels like it breezes along, and I find that really delightful. Well, it, it's also because something you pointed to earlier, Sam, and that is that she, from the minute minute that Jefferson shows up, she is on a different emotional arc. And, 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 and I think that's also done in a very lovely way because, and again, it's another way that, which the film uses repetition. You have at the beginning the arrival of a rocking chair, mm-hmm. and we learn that she has 38 rocking chairs. And then when the rocking chair shows up in Connecticut, and he shows her all the proper ways to rock, I just... It's, it's, it's like they've taken... I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting, of course, because the rocking chair is all part of the deception of Elizabeth Lane, who doesn't exist. But when it shows up in Connecticut and he sits in it and starts talking about you rock this way and you rock that way, it's now connecting with who she really is. And it's, it's just, it's just, a, it's a, and, and I think it's from that moment that she is in a sense engaged in a very different kind of action than the rest of the story they've tried to build around her. And she even goes back to that rocking chair in the the, the yes. in the the night when she's sitting, kind of trying to figure things out. She, that 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 that's where she goes to sit uh, to mm-hmm. sit and ponder. Um, as you pointed out, there this is this is a movie that is really um, uh, questioning and overturning gender roles. I just want to point out to listeners: there's a really great article. Um, in the AV Club from December eighteenth, uh, twenty twenty, by Carolyn Seedy, where she dives into this and 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 writes so much about this. Um, so a lot of the things that I was thinking about that made me think about this movie was reading that piece and going back and watching it, and um, you know, kind of thinking about thinking about that. You know, Yardley has this line to uh, to her that you know millions of women in the United States pattern their lives on that daily feature and basically you're going to live up to that right so so there is this sense that yardley is struggling to maintain maintain these things um in the same way that this you know that there are people who feel like like in post-war america like there is a question mark in this movie which is like what does post-war america look like and 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 that's also that's also again not to belabor the point, but that's also, again, how to a certain degree that ideal is also a fantasy. Because the very fact that Yardley has, says she, she kind of has to live up to this, to this role, but that's just what it is. It's a role. It doesn't exist. She doesn't have a, 
You know, she doesn't have any of the things. She doesn't. I. She doesn't represent any any of the things that he sees as ideal because they they don't exist, at least not in her life. And so I think. So I think that's one of the ways in which the film is very subtly subversive, right? Because Yardley is saying you've got to live up this ideal for all these American women. Well, really, what he's saying is you have to you have to tell these women to aspire to something that actually is not not not, not necessarily attainable. Uh, and and even even the household she has in Connecticut has a maid, so it's like it's this upper middle class house. She household. She doesn't even run the household all by herself. And and Yardley never stops to think about that, right? Because I don't think the maid is in her actual account of the Connecticut house. So it, it so it's a very uh, interesting criticism of this kind of patriarchal society that tells women here's exactly how you have to behave. When in fact, no woman in the film actually behaves that way, especially Elizabeth Lane. Yeah, I was. I wrote down questions that this movie asks about post-war America in ways that it's kind of prescient, right? So, uh, you know, some of the ones that we've already talked about, like, will the Mrs. Gersigs of the world go back to purely domestic lives? I mean, that is a question. I mean, we looking at this movie uh, eighty, almost eighty years later, right? Have a different. Um, we know how the story plays out, but that's a very live question in nineteen forty-five, <laughs> or. Uh, will the Noras of the world be increasingly scandalized by modern living situations, right? Like that, that's a great moment when they go into the bedroom and she knows yes. that they're not married and she packs up to leave. And there's all this question about like, well, what is a relationship? What is a, I mean, it's the movie's not pushing that question too much, but it's clearly she is scandalized by how, how she sees the world changing around her. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting. And so this is another question I had was, Will the Yardleys and Sloans of the world uh, capitalize on new building materials and modern plastics to design and develop American sub? I mean, I thought about like Levittown when he has the little models for the houses and Yardley wants. It's just like, oh, this is this is prescient about like the move to suburban America Mm post-war the changes that come with the GI Bill. All of this stuff is like in it. It's the movie's not about that. But it sure points a big arrow at it when you look back on it, and and uh, I think that was really fascinating. Like, like what is the role of someone like Sloan and the uh, a potential Sloan Yardley combination as we move into suburban post war America? Well, the other thing I love about that about that uh, uh, Sam is, and you think about it, then well, what kind of farmhouse is this? Mm-hmm. I mean, if this is supposed to be a traditional farmhouse and it's got all these modern features that Sloan is built in, which I think is one of the reasons why they keep coming back to that. And of course, it's another example of how uh, the, the man is much more interested in, in the literal domestic arrangement, like the literal mm-hmm. architecture of the house. He's much more interested in that than, than, she, than, than she is. So I love the fact that, the, that even the farmhouse is a physical object is not really the farmhouse that she's writing about. Right. Well, and and as as Caroline Seedy points out too, it's like for both Felix and Sloan, Felix as a, as somebody who's really into cooking, and Sloan who's into not just architecture but like interior design and home right. building, home design. That as men, they can make those things into prosperous careers. Yes. Where for Elizabeth and and the other women at the time, those are expected to be just parts of their daily lives. Like like that, those aren't those aren't career aspiration type things. Those are the types of things that, that are expected of you. And then, and then Elizabeth Lane in quotes is also a writer. Yeah. And, and she also points out in that article, which I agree with you, Sam, it's a really, really good article. And she also points out same thing with cooking. 
right? It's the it's it's Felix, the man that's making a living through cooking, not 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 any of the women. So another question this 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 movie raises, and this gets to I think one of the the big interesting questions of this movie is. Uh, will the Elizabeth Lanes of the world have the opportunity to create a new form of life that will be both that allows them to be both professional women and also if they desire to be wives and mothers? And the corollary to that is: uh, is there a room? Is there room for Jones to be a stay-at-home husband, father, as he pursues his career as an artist and painter? Which he tells us really quickly that that's that's what he <laughs> is, if if that's to be believed, right? So like like. Even if you think about him as an artist and painter, like that would work, you know, a world where she's basically writing and making money doing that. And he's staying at home doing the domestic things he's clearly good at and maybe doing a little bit of art making as well. Like, is there room for that in post-war America? Well, that's one of the wonderful things about the film's ending, right? Because it it both ends with a traditional rom-com closure on that kiss. But at the same time, it also ends with those open questions that you've just raised. And 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 I think an audience, sometimes I feel like this, this film is, um, it, it's almost like one of those pictures that, uh, it's almost like the rabbit or the duck, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, depending on your perspective. So you can take this film as a very uh, fluffy rom-com. And the, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because I thought it very interesting as I researched the film how many people, including contemporary reviews, or contemporary New York New York Times review, was like, "Well, it's sort of an okay. It's really kind of clumsy about this, and it's yeah, it, it's sort of an okay sort of film." In fact, I ran across one run reviewer on the on the internet who said the um, on the web who said the film was so irritating she had a hard time getting to the end of it. And so you've got kind of that picture. That's the doctor, or it's the rabbit, and it's this rich, much more interesting kind of layered, open ended, subversive commentary that we've been talking about. And that's and I think the the kiss at the end conveys that kind of ambiguity. Okay, it's the closure, classic American couple, or the open version, well, what are they actually going to become? Which is kind of your classic question about the ending of a film. What happens the next day? So it's sort of like what happens in the in the next years that, that come after this? And you can see how that film can point both directions. It points both to the 1950s domestic domestic image of the nuclear family and the moms at home cooking Betty Crocker, or you have women becoming scientists, lawyers, uh, pursuing uh, careers. It's like you're reading my notes. I have that exact question written down Um, because what's interesting is I was looking at, so this is a 2008 review and this gets referenced. I I went and found the review. This gets referenced in the Wikipedia page for the movie. Uh, The film critic Emmanuel Levy says Mm -hmm. the comedy obviously propagated conservative ideology, sending women to the kitchen to dutifully play their roles as housewives and mothers after tasting some emancipation during the war years. So Mm -hmm. his read on this movie is that it is, it is very a very conservative message about like yes all of these things happened but i guess his read is that elizabeth becomes basically becomes a version of elizabeth lane or at least at least makes the attempt then to become that where i read this i as i was watching this movie i kept thinking like we have now established that i think as much as yardley cares about I me mean, says at the beginning I care about two things uh, that they print the truth and that they obey my orders. And it's like, well, if he's able to fudge a little bit on what he means by they print the truth, right? Like he seems very interested in making in, in, in his circulation and making money. And he sees her as 
uh, potential star or not, a, not even potential as one of his star writers, like, like, would he be willing? To, cause, cause the movie, it's not even clear whether she's going to work for Yardley anymore. Cause actually the last thing she says is that she, that she won't, but that's before she knows everything. Mm-hmm. So like, like the question is, does she continue to write? Like does, and, and if she does, what does she write? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one, one of the reasons why I think the more, um, I mean, I, I also saw that uh, that quote that you read earlier about the film, you know, kind of reinforcing these roles. One of the reasons why I think the director is pointing us in a more um, disruptive direction is I don't know a lot about the director, Peter Godfrey. He was an Englishman. Um, he, I don't think I've ever seen anything else he's directed, and maybe I've only heard of one of those films. But he actually started his career as a, th- as a theater director in London, um, and he did things like he directed Paul Robeson, in a play about the Haitian Revolution. And it is interesting, the film has two small roles by two black actors, uh, one of whom is Emmett Smith and the other is kind of an unknown actress. And they're not stereotypical roles that they that they play. It's a very small, but I think significant gesture to pointing to maybe a different kind of world in which even, and I don't want to make too big a deal about this, but even in which maybe even racial uh, stereotypes are being shed or racial roles are, are changing. So I think, to me, I think that that's really the subversive heart uh, at, at the, the beats uh, in this movie. Um, one of the things that I think is is funny about the, the, the history of this movie as well um, is that this movie was remade. There's this, it's a weird curio of this. Yeah. Like, it, this was remade in 1992 um as a, a tv movie or no 92 it was 92 was it 92 okay yep. sorry okay. as as a, it, it's the 92 is important cuz it's at a cuz it's a tv movie um starring uh Diane Cannon and Chris Christopherson but the interesting thing about it is that this was directed yes. it's the only directorial effort by Arnold Schwarzenegger yes. which is a <laughs> which is a deeply strange i mean if you think about Schwarzenegger in 92 this is <laughs> right around right after like terminator 2 like like he's kind of at the apex of his mm. uh blockbuster movie career you know so kind of between terminator 2 and true lives or true lies that he um <laughs> that he takes time out to make a a bad um remake of christmas in connecticut it's just a, it's such a strange strange thing yeah, and uh, he even has evidently a uh, a non-speaking cameo role in the film. And even though I'm a Chris Offerson fan as both an actor and a, and a singer-songwriter, I've not been able to bring myself <laughs> to watch that movie. I just, I just can't imagine it. So do you have other things you want to talk about with this film? Oh, I just wanted to talk about um, just, just kind of one other, well, a couple of things. One, one other moment, and that is, uh, again, it's back to this idea of repetition, repetition, resolution. Um, that little statue that she keeps picking oh, up. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, you know, she picks it up twice and she finally smashes it, which, you know, is a, I suppose you could say it's a highly symbolic gesture, among other things. But I just I, I just love the way the film kind of rolls along on those, on, on those series of things like that. Um, and then at the beginning, when Mary, uh, at the very beginning in the hospital, uh, Mary tells, uh, tells Jeff, uh, she, she says, marriage and domesticity frighten you. Which is which is a really kind of interesting foreshadowing because that in fact is not the case at all. What frightens him is is her. So so the, so, so there's the sense that just as we see her falling in, we see Elizabeth falling in love with him. That kind of primes us for him to fall in love with her. And the final thing I want to bring up, since this is a Christmas movie, 
is the duet or the, the performance of the piano. And it's interesting what they pair, right? They pair a little town of Bethlehem, classic Christmas carol, which has that great line, the hopes and fears of all the years. And then he sings the original composition, the wish I wish tonight. I just, I, and it's just lovely the way those two things kind of come together. And of course he was, a, he had a great voice and they had to find a way to use him. We seem to watch these movies, Sam, where they try to find an opportunity for a vocalist to perform right. like, like Ricky Nelson and Rio Bravo. Anyway, I, I just think that that's, that's a lovely moment. And it's kind of a turning point uh, in, 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 for her in, in the plot. Well, because, because what's interesting is that moment, as much as this, this movie is, uh, you know, questioning some of those like idyllic um ideals about about uh womanhood or femininity or these types of things we do get an ideal idyllic like christmas card moment at the same time like 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 she's in the middle of experiencing an ideal as she's trimming the tree and he's sitting there playing piano and sloan's out of the picture you know because he's off with um well off with yardley so 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 it, it both questions those ideals but also paints us a a perfect picture of 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 really an Elizabeth Lane ideal moment, yeah. and and I also think I ought to say that you know one of the things this has in common with um, it's a wonderful life is um, a film that has been much more appreciated uh, subsequently. And to be fair, the contemporary reviewers, when you think about kind of our line of interpretation on this mo- on this movie, I think it's a pretty hard perspective to have without the benefit of several years later. You know, so I can kind of see why, if, as, if, from a contemporary perspective, it was only this kind of uh, frothy rom-com, which I still think is much more competent, some of the reviewers said. But I think it's really only at a distance of 20 or 30 years you can really look back and start to kind of assess the film and see it with the complexity that we think it has. So uh, going back to you talked about the little statue that she is constantly picking up and Sloan's taking out of her hands. Um, do you think there's significance to what the statue is? I don't know. I couldn't tell. I, I didn't. I didn't pause to see it, what it, it looked. Was. It looked. I think there is potentially because yeah. it looked to be uh, a very much sort of Marie Antoinette era like statue of a woman in like a okay, big yeah, yeah. Yes. the Victorian angel in the house. Yes, exactly. Which is another woman's role. Yeah. Yes, yes. So 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 it's significant when she smashes it, right? Yeah. She's constantly picking picking it up and not picking it up because she wants to destroy it, but picking it up almost as like a a comfort object or something yeah, like yeah. just and but then but then at the end that's the thing that gets destroyed as so i mean i feel like that's a deeply symbolic I, i'm glad you brought that up because as i watched it a second at first i thought it was a bottle of something because it's yeah, shaped yeah, like that yeah. but it is very clearly a like like a victorian era woman and i'd love to know if that was improvisatory if if she uh i mean it seems to me that's 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 the kind of action that i don't know if that's in the script if we i i would love to know whether she improvised that Right, so, right. But if, if so, it definitely became a runner because it happens. I think more than you. I think it maybe is three or four times. Oh yeah, she absolutely. picks it up throughout the movie. Yeah, yeah. She does so at least three times. Yeah, yeah. So, so it becomes meaningful when uh, when that when that comes up. Uh, well, Barrett, uh, this is a yet another um, kind of little hidden Christmas gem uh, that I like. Again, I would have never watched this movie, and um, it was so different than what I expected, and I just adore barbara stanwick in this movie even if she's playing against type like she could have made clearly she's showing 
I could make a million of these. I, mm-hmm. I can do this really well. I thought she was so unbelievably charming in this movie. Um, yeah, so so I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, we're going to take a little break uh, until January 14th will be our next episode. So uh, a break over uh, over the, the holidays. What do you have for us when we come back? Well, I'm going to start us off on kind of a different run. Um, and I won't tell you exactly what that run's going to look like, but how it's going to start. Um, Paul Giamatti is having a moment with the holdovers. Um, and so I want to go back to an earlier uh, Giamatti performance in a film by Tom McCarthy, who is a director that we previously visited with, uh, with a station agent. Uh, he's a director I admire several of his films. Probably his biggest film so far has been Spotlight. Um, but... He, his third film is with Paul Giamatti from 2011 uh, called uh, Win Win. Uh, and I, I, I'd like to revisit that as a way of spotlighting Paul Giamatti a little bit. And when we talk about that film, I can tell you more about my connection to the Giamattis. Oh, fantastic. Uh, I'm very excited. This is a movie that I'm aware of. I remember hearing about this movie when it came out and people being, uh, it's a small movie, but people being kind of excited about uh, excited about it. Um, I'm a big fan of the McCarthy movies that I've seen, so I'm excited to watch this. Barrett, thank you so much for recommending uh, Christmas in Connecticut and for having this conversation. I would say, listeners, if you haven't seen this movie, it's really not much you can spoil about it. Like it, 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 it follows the path. Once you know the the first ten minute reveals, like it kind of follows the path you would think. But it is an unbelievably charming movie, uh, definitely in my my little Christmas canon now. So thank you so much for recommending this and having this conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back in mid-January to talk about win-win in the video store. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.